Hi, you're now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. We're happy to bring you sermons like this one every week. You can find other sermons at our site at harvest-community.org. So without further ado, here's our speaker. Decided um, to take a little more of almost like a, a workshop approach, and so Pastor Bill's going to give us uh, a seminar on evangelism, and then he's going to field some questions and, and with some Q&A time as well. So let's just bow in prayer as the guys are still distributing those things. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing on this time. <clears throat> Father, we would ask that you would truly send your Holy Spirit for this time. We don't want to experience debilitating guilt, be paralyzed by regrets or insecurities, but we want our eyes to be opened and we want our hearts to be melted. And so we pray that you would use this time to really energize our hearts and help us to catch a vision for what a privilege we have to tell the great story of Jesus to people. And who wouldn't want a relationship with you? Help us to be convinced that that's what people most need and would long for if their eyes were open. We pray that you would bless this time together and then energize each of us to become bearers of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Thanks very much, Pastor Dave. Good morning, everybody. How's it going? Going okay. Good, good. Okay, some of you have got a handout. Some of you will receive a handout. So that's good news. And uh, as Pastor Dave mentioned, basically we're going to take a seminar approach, which means uh, I'll talk, then you'll talk around the table, interact with each other, and then uh, we'll land on some Q&A. That's kind of the game plan this morning. Years ago, when I was uh, in Scotland as a Youth for Christ's National Evangelist there, I came over to the States to do some ministry and arrived at Boston's Logan Airport. And, uh, you know, you've got to go through customs and immigration. And at immigration, the guy said, what is your profession? And uh, there's a good way and a dumb way for me to communicate that. You know, if I reply with a functional answer, uh, then that can provoke conversation. So sometimes I'll say, I'm a teacher. And people say, really, what do you teach? I say, I teach the relevance of Jesus Christ to life in the 21st century. Uh, what do you do? I say, well, I do a bunch of things. You know, one time I said to this gal, have you ever seen 24? And she said, yeah. I said, CTU, I work for CTU. So, so that was an interesting spiritual conversation right there. But I gave him a dumb answer, and the dumb answer is, I am an evangelist. Now, I was proud to say I'm an evangelist, but I'm landing at Boston's Logan Airport when uh, the televangelist scandals are fresh in the media, and the guy almost takes a physical step back in the booth. And the irony is, Evangel means good news. And this guy thought, wow, we've got another one of these scoundrels coming into the country. So what comes to mind when you hear the word evangelist? Do you think of white suit, long protracted offerings, big hair? What do you think of when you hear the word evangelism? Becky Pippert says, I thought evangelism was something someone wouldn't do to a dog, and never mind to their best friend. 
And so maybe in the category of painful experiences, you've got root canal treatment and evangelism. And uh, sometimes our pagan pre-Christian friends are uptight about evangelism, and we're even more so uptight. So I want to spend a little bit of time answering the question, what is evangelism? And then look at some motivation for evangelism, look at what our message is, and then some strategies to share the message. All that coming at you this morning. So hopefully you've rested well. You've slept on those hard-as-a-rock wheaten beds. I thought, wow. And they charge these students how much to live in this palatial environment? Praise Jesus. So on your sheets, you've got the question, what is evangelism? And I've offered some, some definitions that enable us to facet around the concept or to have different lenses to identify what this enterprise of good using it looks like. So we've got the classic definition first off from the Indian evangelist D.T. Niles where he says evangelism is one beggar telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's a beautiful, simple, compelling definition that reminds us there's a simplicity to evangelism And you don't have to have it all together. You're a beggar. You're bankrupt. You're empty. You're a sinner in need of a savior. You're spiritually hungry. And you found Jesus to be the bread of life. Then Billy Abraham offers us his definition. Evangelism is best construed as the set of actions which are governed by the intention to initiate people into the kingdom of God. So in that definition, we extrapolate the big idea that we're not simply inviting people to make a decision about Jesus. We're inviting people to come under the rule and reign of God. Then a one-word definition would be overflow. Out of the overflow, out of the reservoir of what God has poured into our lives, we share his love and his mercy and his grace with others. 2 Corinthians 5 There's a famous passage where the Apostle Paul says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. The Good News Bible, which was written for people with English as their second language, instead of using the word reconciliation, or we implore you to be reconciled to God, they used the phrase making friends for God. And uh, that could be one definition, sharing how God's story has collided with your story, But then we've got Archbishop William Temple's definition. So to present Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that men shall come to put their trust in God through him, to accept him as their savior and serve him as their king in the fellowship of his church. That's helpful in a number of ways. Reminds us that evangelism is sharing good news about Jesus. And we find this refrain throughout the book of Acts that whether it's Philip the evangelist, going down to Samaria, and it says he was announcing the good news of Jesus, or Paul on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he's telling the good news of Jesus and the resurrection. And some of the people were so confused, they thought that the apostle Paul was advocating two new gods to add to their collection and inventory of gods, Jesus, a male deity, and Anastasis, resurrection, a female deity. But what's clear even in their confusion is they did pick up the idea that at the very heart of the Christian message is a resurrected Jesus. Wow, thunder coming across us even now. It's good news about Jesus. 
So this is where I think it's unhelpful to talk about a plan or a program of evangelism. So one famous evangelical leader who will remain suitably anonymous and we will protect his guilt by shrouding him in anonymity wrote in a leadership book about how he launched a church and because no one else would do it, he decided to do the evangelism program. Evangelism is not a program. It's not a plan. Sometimes evangelicals are fond of saying, and I shared with so-and-so the plan of salvation. It's not a plan. It's a person, the person of Jesus. Jesus is the good news. So we share the significance of Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. And that's the focus of the message. The message orbits around Jesus, his majesty, his power, his grace, his justice, his mercy, his supremacy. Michael Green said, there are many, uh, there's one way to God, and that is Jesus. But there's many ways to Jesus. Now that raises a tantalizing question. Except Michael Green would have said it like this. There's one way to God, and that is Jesus. But there's many ways to Jesus, because that's the way he speaks. And this brings up an idea of what theologians and missiologists call situational accentuation, which you couldn't say with a mouthful of graham crackers for neither love nor money. But situational accentuation, in other words, depending on the situation, you accent a certain aspect of the gospel. So if you imagine the gospel is like a diamond in your hand, and the gospel is good news about Jesus, if you lifted a huge diamond above your head and turned it around slowly, different shafts of light would be uh, refracted off of the diamond based on the angle in which you hold it. And this is true about Jesus. So your approach to people will vary depending on where they are. And this is why I think at best, at best, and that's all I'll concede, you know, something like the four spiritual laws is like training wheels. It kind of gets you going. But everybody's got a different starting point. So my old buddies who used to tear up the streets of Glasgow and shove cocaine up their noses, your starting place with them would be different in their addiction, their rage, their violence, their mischief than, say, if you're talking to a self-righteous religious person. Because the summons to follow Jesus is not just a summons to repent of your unrighteousness, it's to repent of your self-righteousness. So your conversation with a religious person would be different than your conversation with an addicted and broken person. So a religious person, you would explore issues like regeneration. Have they experienced the quickening power of the Spirit, releasing new life? What is their relationship with Jesus like? And you attempt to deconstruct their attempts to justify themselves before God by their good works. But someone who's broken, someone who's fractured, someone who's crushed, someone who's mired in addiction and dysfunction, maybe filled with self-loathing, you would have a different story to share with them. And we take our cue from Jesus. Jesus did not have a pre-programmed package that he shared with people. He only said you must be born again twice to the same person, Nicodemus. He said to him, 
Nicodemus, you must be born again. And then in the King Jim version in John 3 verse 7, he says, Marvel not that I saith unto thee, you must be born again. So Jesus didn't say, wow, that born again talk really worked. That was awesome. I'm going to try that again on this uh, promiscuous woman at the well in Sychar because it worked so well with Nicodemus. No, there's a woman whose act every day of drawing water from a well is kind of like a dramatic parable of her life story. She's out there at high noon when nobody in their right mind would gather water because the desert sun would be at its greatest intensity and because the well was like cheers where everybody knows your name and you would just kind of hang up uh, and catch up with each other, gather water. Then you'd get all the latest gossip and you'd go home with your water containers filled. But she's out there as an isolated figure because she's ostracized. And she's someone who's thirsty for adoring love and intimacy, but like many in our culture, assumes that sex equals love and assumes that different sexual partners will deliver what our heart is longing for. And so Jesus isn't condemning her when he says, go and get your husband. He's going to the core issue. And she's like, say what? What you talking about, Jesus? And he says, yeah, you've had five failed marriages. And dude number six, you aren't even married to him. And she's like, whoa. And then he talks about living water, about that thirst being assuaged. So we take our cue from Jesus, who is good news, and really talk up a storm about Jesus. The early church orbited around Jesus, the person and work of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the magnificence of Jesus. They were besotted with Jesus and their conversation, to use Annie Dillard's phrase, was Jesus-y. So evangelism involves Jesus-y conversations. It's centered in God the Father and dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit, according to your notes. So there's a Trinitarian formula And there, according to Archbishop William Temple's definition, there's a reminder that evangelism is not simply a human enterprise. It's spirit-dependent. It means incorporation into the church. So the goal of evangelism isn't to get your buddy, your girlfriend, your neighbor, simply to decide for Christ. But the goal of New Testament evangelism described by Archbishop William Temple, is to see people assimilated into the life of the church. And this is where some of our historic models have have fallen down. And then I've put in, in parentheses, belonging precedes believing in our new cultural landscape. So the old evangelical evangelistic approaches, we would call people to belief, and then we would try to make belonging happen. But you'll find that a lot of people want to kind of sit on the edges of community, and that community becomes a faith incubator. So at our church, where we're a large church and people can hide in a large church, which is both a curse and a blessing, we're having to figure out what we do to help people take their next step into the life of Grace Point Community Church, more significantly and importantly, their next step into their life in Jesus. But at the same time, I give people permission to hide. I give people permission to sit in the bleachers because I know there's a slew of damaged people who are cynical, skeptical. 
They've been stabbed in the back at a church before, and they're sitting in the bleachers, and they don't want to get in the game. They're kind of kicking the tires. Pre-Christian people sniffing around. And so I want to give them permission and space to move towards Jesus. And so there's a tension here where if God is your father, then the church is your mother, and the church is also your family. So we've got to understand that evangelism is communitarian and it's come and join us as we follow Jesus and think through ways that we can create authentic community. It challenges decision. So here we're reminded something that's a feature of New Testament evangelism that we call for a response. But I've put there in parenthesis to remember the wisdom of Steve Shogren, but you don't know what that is because I haven't told you yet. Steve Shogren, like most preachers, asks a question. And then he answers his own question. He says, how long does it take for someone to come to faith in Christ? And his answer is, it takes each person a unique amount of time. So some people, they're on a slow, meandering journey towards faith. We talk of faith as a journey, and they haven't come to faith. So there requires an appropriate sensitivity. Sometimes we need to challenge people And be very confrontational about surrender. Other people were walking with them. So, for example, years ago, when I was a pastor in the US of A in the Pacific Northwest, I had a couple show up at our church, and they wanted me to marry them. And the reason they wanted me to marry them was they were Roman Catholics, and they got divorced, and the Catholic church wouldn't handle them, so they would come and get legitimized by the Protestant pastor, And then eventually what they did, they went back to the Catholic Church. Go figure. Uh, But we got to know them a little bit, had dinner with them, chatted with them, and uh, had a preliminary conversation. And then I had them in my office for premarital counseling. And I said to them, well, Arnell and Cecile, how do you expect Jesus to figure in your marriage? And Arnell said, you mean like going to church? I'm like, no, duh, you're as dumb as a bag of rocks. No, I didn't say that. I said, no, that's not what I'm talking about. And then Cecile pipes up. She said, you mean like young life? I said, talk to me about young life, Cecile. She said, I was a young life leader in high school. And I'm going, wow, I'm getting goosebumps at this point in time. I said, so tell me what that was like. And she tells you about young life and about chubby bunnies, you know, and how they would try and choke adolescent peers to death by shoving marshmallows down their throat. Chubby bunnies. Chubby bunnies. I said, but Cecile, beyond all the ridiculous games that you played at Young Life, at the very heart, it was about having a relationship with Jesus. She said, yeah. I said, here, let me read something to you. And I turned to Luke chapter 24, where there's a couple of guys bemoaning the disappearance of Jesus on the road to Emmaus, and a stranger walks beside them and begins to talk to them. And then eventually there's an awakening and they understand. This is Jesus. I said, these guys were accompanied by a stranger on the road for the entire road. I said, listen, you guys have been in the Catholic Church, you've been in young life, and there's a stranger been walking with you your whole life. His name is Jesus. He wants you to know him. And they're in my office. They both committed their life to Jesus. 
And it was something radical and transforming for Cecile in particular. So we need to recognize for some people, it's cataclysmic. It's Saul on the road to Damascus. For others, it's us walking on the road to Emmaus with them, pointing out the stranger who loves them and cares for them. It issues in discipleship, a long walk of obedience in the same direction. And so what can we say from all of this? Because we'd better move on because that's only page one. Evangelism involves inviting people to discover more about Jesus. Does that alleviate the pressure? Because you always hear these stories about some pastor who comes to town and he led eight people to the Lord in the plane before it crashed and he was the only survivor. And so therefore you can't verify that urban legend. And so evangelism isn't a sales pitch. It's not about closing the deal. It's inviting others to discover more about Jesus. And so it's not like as Becky Manley Pepper in the book Out of the Salt Shaker recounts, she's doing evangelism and she sees one of her peers out there on the beach during spring break sharing Christ and he comes back bummed. And because she has the gift of discernment, she says, behold, thou art bummed. What's wrong with you? He goes, wow. I only got to share one of the four spiritual laws with those people. She says, do you even remember their names? It's not, no. So it's not about dumping a plan down someone's throat. It's inviting people to discover more about Jesus, sharing a little bit more. It's not about closing the deal. It's maybe more like putting some links in the chain. So we can all be invitational. That's uh, what Andrew did in John chapter 1. Andrew says, hey, we found a Messiah. And Jesus is invitational. Jesus says, come and see. My wife grew up in a Mormon family. She was baptized as a Mormon. And then because of severe pressure from uh, her parents' parents, her grandparents, in other words, they disconnected from the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But her family still had weird theology. You know, just because you're pressured out of the Mormons doesn't mean Mormonism is removed from your, your grid, from your filter. So there's a little girl who sees the story of Gladys Aylward on TV, a missionary to China who was turned down by missions agencies and went because Jesus told her to go. And this becomes like a divine deposit in her six-year-old heart that God wanted her to be a missionary. Her parents drag her along to the Mormon church. Then they're dislocated from the Mormon church. So how does a little girl who has a fascination with Jesus develop a knowledge of God or hear the gospel? Thank God for the Baptists. The Baptists did a VBS, not inside their building, but in the park. I mean, how radical and innovative is that? Whoa. And so they did VBS in the park, and in the through traffic is my wife as a little girl. And she's there, hears about Jesus, is fascinated by the gospel, and then the Baptists pack up and there's no more VBS. She's about 10 at this point in time. Fast forward eight, 10 years. She's working in a factory as an executive assistant and in the same office is someone who was the VBS leader, Mary Pollard. And Mary says, wow, I recognize you, you're Morag. And Morag says, wow, I recognize you, you're Mary. We met, where was it? That Bible club in the park. 
And they develop a friendship. They lunch together. They hang out together. And at one point, Mary says, you know, there's a concert in town at the town hall. Why don't you come with me? What kind of a concert? It's like a Jesus rock concert. Uh, I've got tickets. Why don't you come? And my wife says, sure, I'll come. They meet at the town hall. The band plays. The lead vocalist preaches. The lead vocalists invite people to put their trust in Jesus. And my wife becomes a Christ follower. Mary Pollard didn't close the deal, but she was pivotal because she invested in my wife and she invited her to discover more about Jesus. But this raises a question, why bother? Why bother? Page three. See, made progress just by ignoring page two. (laughs) Why bother? So there's a number of reasons why Bible-believing people who affirm that Jesus is Yahweh, Jesus is God come in the flesh, don't bother with evangelism. And you might find your little reason for not being evangelistically agitated here. None of our business. And that's part of the legacy of the Enlightenment. Leslie New begins a helpful, thoughtful read to walk slowly through. And he explains because of the Enlightenment, life got fractured into two compartments, the public sphere and the private sphere. So in the public sphere is science, mathematics, economics. In the private sphere, morality, faith. So the gospel no longer becomes public truth. It becomes a matter of personal preference. Gospel is no longer true truth for all people everywhere. It's, gee, I'm glad you found your truth, or I'm glad that works out for you. And so there's that vibe that percolates around our culture. A lack of first-hand personal faith. Not sure where we stand. So if you're not up close and personal with Jesus, or you're not convinced and your heart is settled that God has fully accepted you for Jesus' sake, that won't fill you with a robust evangelistic confidence. Live at a distance from Christ. Like that little phrase about the Apostle Peter following at a distance. To speak out is too costly. So here we get to the idea of fear. Hey, if I tell the guys that I work with, that I'm a Jesus follower, then they'll treat me like a freak. Well, you're a freak already. So uh, just why don't you out yourself on Monday and just say, hey, gays come out the closet. I'm coming out the closet. I am a Christ follower. Da-da. You could try that and email me and, uh, and let me know how that works out for you. But we're fearful of invading people's privacy or we're fearful of rejection. And the challenge is, it's an odd one. The people that we're closest to are sometimes the ones who are hardest to share Christ with. Our family, our siblings, they've seen us at our worst. But remember, it's not about you, it's about Jesus. And so it might be appropriate just to have a meal and say, hey, I've been remiss about sharing something with you, something very important to me. Uh, And I want to know that I care about you deeply. And because of that, I want to share with you something dramatic and transformative that's happened in my life. Other thing is we're ignorant and we fear that we might get beaten in an argument. There's a simple answer for that. And that's simply do your homework. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. And so really people have clusters of questions. There's, as the writer of Ecclesiastes says, there's nothing new under the sun. 
So we can be, not that we become smart, Alex, but we can be forearmed. So that people say, well, the Bible's a bunch of fairy tales filled with contradictions. Really? Uh, when's the last time you read a book? Uh, I didn't. Would you mind showing me where some of the contradictions are? Uh, no. Or I was walking through the Arndale Center in Manchester, and uh, there was a guy selling Marxist Times. And uh, I got into a conversation and very quickly discovered I'm a Christ follower. And he says, the Bible's a load of junk written like 400 years after the events. So, I mean, how can you, as a self-respecting person, and an intelligent person have any confidence in the integrity of that book. I said, hey, buddy, about 10 minutes walk from where we are standing is the John Rylands University Library, where there's a parchment of John's gospel that can be accurately dated to, say, AD 115. And if it's a copy, and it is, that means the original is earlier. I said, so don't give me any of your nonsense about the Bible being 400 years after the events made of invention of religious fairy tales. So there's the manuscript evidence. People have questions like, if God is so loving, if God is so great, or Christopher Hitchens writes, God is not great. And his central thesis is religion is a factory of evil, violence, and destruction. So how do you handle that? Someone says to you, you think God's all loving? Yep, God's kind. Yep, God's all powerful. Then why? Why 9-11? Why the Iraqi conflict? Why a taxi driver in England going on a shooting spree and, and killing 12 people at random? Why, why, why? Now that's a philosophical question that people have wrestled with for centuries, but it can also be a heart cry where someone presents a question and they're speaking out of personal pain, like my mother was a decent, hardworking person who raised us when dad abandoned us and she died of cancer as a young woman. And you're telling me God is loving and kind? So sometimes it's pastoral, sometimes it's philosophical. But we need to figure out how we, how we deal with those questions. Okay, we live in cultural isolation. Here's the reason. Here's my theory. If you live up close and personal with Jesus and you live up close and personal with pre-Christian people, kingdom stuff will happen. Invariably. Invariably. And so one of the great disarming tactics of our day to immobilize the church and make you evangelistically impotent is to have you consumed with life in a religious bubble, with life in the subculture, if you've seen Jake Gyllenhaal's movie Bubble Boy and you become Bubble Boy or Bubble Girl and you live in the evangelical bubble. And that used to drive me nuts when I came to the States as a snarky Scotsman. People would say, are you going to put your kids in Christian school? Why? Why would I want to do that? You know, it actually costs less for me to do my master's than for you to send your kid to Christian school for a year. Go figure. So I was hostile towards that initially, and now I've mellowed and compromised. But, uh, but the issue is there's a real possibility that you could be born into an evangelical family and live your whole life in an evangelical subculture. 
You don't go to pagan concerts because maybe you would be guilty of passive, passive inhalation of marijuana at a concert. So you go to Christian rock concerts. You send your kids to Christian schools. You've got the Christian yellow pages that says plumber, born again, spirit-filled, pre-millennial, pre-trib. You go, he's the guy for me. <laughs> now, the fact that the guy's got 10 thumbs and is a numbskull, he's going, wow, I'd rather have a born-again plumber than an Islamic plumber. Or he's got landscaper, and he's got the sign of the fish, and go, yeah, let's get the guy with the sign of the fish. And so you can go to private Christian school, private Christian college, and then work for the Christian Yellow Pages. Listen to Christian radio. You know, some people, they've got every single radio station preset to Christian radio. I hate Christian radio. And I used to be on Christian radio. And that's why I hate it. But the danger is, to use the words of that well-known theologian and philosopher, Elvis Presley, we can live life in the ghetto. And we're detached from significant engagement with pre-Christian people. I'm wrestling with this. I'm now the pastor of a large church. I'm like the CEO of a small stinking company. And I'm always putting out fires and dealing stuff and five-year plan, three-year plan. We're on this strategic planning mode and there's never enough hours in the day. And when I was a pastor of a smaller church in the US, I had much more depth of involvement with pagans. It took years. I would show up at parent-teacher meetings and all the dads would be at the back of the hall hating every minute of it. And it was supposed to be like a cooperative, which would speak to collaborative decision-making. No. Attila, the hen, the principal, would be at the front saying, here's what we're going to do. And all the dads would hate it. And I had a couple of epiphanies. One was, gee, this is why people come late to church. Like, they don't really want to be there. Mm. And that's why I would always show up late, and then I would work the back of the room and say, hey, guys, who wants to go for a pint? And uh, we would disappear. You know, we would sign in like the bad boys, and then we would go to the nearest tavern and develop significant friendships with pre-Christian guys. So it's to do with the investment of our time. And that's why you've got options. And, and I might step on a few toes, but I do so in ignorance. So it's, it's the kind of standard modus operandi, and my church is guilty of this. I've inherited a church where we've got two soccer teams and they play in the Christian league. And uh, anybody who's not a Christian has to sign a form that they will be a witness player. I mean, how numbskullish and evangelistically insensitive and buffoonerish is that? It's like saying, hello, I am an uncircumcised Philistine. I am unregenerate, I am your witness player, and I will be your goalkeeper. And I will show up at church, even though I think church sucks, so I can play in your team. Now, what would be more missional would be for Christians to say, why don't we invade the community league? Why don't like three or four of us just scatter like little adjutants for the kingdom and play soccer amongst the heathen? That's just different. I suppose. Other challenges we don't see the need or we need to get a handle on our time like I do every time I speak. So why bother? So here's some of the things that can be roadblocks or speed bumps or barriers for you and I to be evangelistically effective. 
some motives. See, it's my thesis again that evangelism is not a program, it's not a plan, but it needs to become a passion. So it really starts in the heart. Proverbs 4.23 says, Above all else, guard your heart. It is the wellspring of life. So why bother? Here's some motives. This is where you've got to pay attention because you've got to fill in the blanks or forever over this weekend go, I, I, I don't know what that space was. So what's the first motive? The love of God. The first motive is the love of God. Evangelism flows from God's nature. God is a loving God. The Bible says God is love. And God is recklessly, passionately besotted with rebels, wayward people, lost people, people who don't know Jesus. The Bible says he is slow to anger, abounding in love. He's rich in compassion. And even when God floods the planet in Genesis 6, it says his heart was sore because of man's wickedness. So even when God executes righteous judgment, it says in the book of Jeremiah, he, he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked because God is love. He loves lost people. His heart beats recklessly and relentlessly with the passion for lost people to be reconciled to him. That's why he says in Genesis, Adam, where are you? And it's not like, gee, Gabriel, I don't know where I put that naked guy with no belly button. Uh, You know, have you seen a naked guy walking around in the garden loud and proud without a stitch on? I just don't know where he is. And Gabriel goes, no, I've seen some monkeys and giraffes and antelopes. I don't know where he is. You made him. You find him. But he's a God who's calling out to rebels. God who's calling out to people who do violence against his statutes. He's a God who yearns for lost men and women, young people, adolescents, pre-adolescents, to come to a saving knowledge of his son, the Lord Jesus. And his heart is brimming over with love. What motivated the healing ministry of Jesus? Compassion and tenderness. Often there's a phrase in the Gospels that says, moved with compassion, then Jesus heals. And then in Matthew 9, 35 through 38, it says, Jesus looked out at the crowds and they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And he was moved with compassion. Secondly, the command of Jesus. So we're under orders. We're obligated, but obligation doesn't get you very far. But we're under orders. He has entrusted us to be heralds and gossipers of the gospel. The gift of the Spirit. Acts 1 verse 8 You will be my witnesses after the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Michael Green says, God did not give us the Holy Spirit to make us comfortable, but to make us missionaries. The glory of God. The glory of God. There's that idea that I referenced last night in Acts 17, that Paul's evangelistic engagement with pagan Greeks was motivated with the desire to see God glorified and honored. He was jealous that God was not being given the honor that he was due. And in Romans 15, verse 16, Paul references his evangelistic ministry in priestly language, that he wants to offer up the Gentiles as a sacrifice to God. So if we simply get bogged down in human need, you just get depressed. We're trying to figure out, and this table just doesn't know, what the population of Chicago was. We found out two million people showed up to celebrate the Blackhawks' victory. And who cares? It's hockey. 
I don't care. Yeah, just telling it like it is. God doesn't care. If God liked hockey, you'd have been born with blades on your feet. That's for sure. (laughs) But whether the population of Chicago is 6 million, as an intelligent-looking gentleman suggested at that table, you go, wow, 6 million lost people. Whoa. Or it's a smaller mission field like Nineveh, 120,000 people who don't know their left hand from their right hand. In other words, they're spiritually clueless. That's immobilizing unless we get a grip that the enterprise of evangelism gives glory to God. Every time you exalt the name of Jesus, that brings honor and pleasure to the heart of God. Then there's the joy of sharing, an act of thanksgiving, and the need of humankind. Without Christ, men and women are dead. So then, why don't you have a conversation with yourselves around the table for the next six minutes? And chat about this. What holds you back from faith sharing? What causes you to suffer from lockjaw rather than be a glad and joy-filled announcer of good news? And then you can identify what would make you more evangelistic. So we're on page four. Have fun. Knock yourself out. And I'll interrupt you in about six or seven minutes. Thank you. All right, let me uh, wade in on top of you there, interrupt you. So I just wanted you to think and wrestle with this, maybe chew on it over the weekend. What's holding you back from being more evangelistic? How could you be more evangelistic? It's kind of two sides of the same coin. Where do you see opportunities to share the gospel? And I'd like to take a moment and pray. And then we'll do lightning quick fill in the blank on page five. So fast, it'll make your head spin and your nose bleed. Let's pray. Father, we pray right now, but over this weekend, that you would stir our hearts and show us the people that you want us to pour our lives into. Show us the people that you want us to serve and love and express kindness to. And help us to be intentional. Give us the courage to speak up and share our story and to talk about Jesus when the need arises. But liberate us from feeling like we've got to make that happen. We thank you that you are more committed to reaching our lost friends and family than we are. But we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes that we might live with missionary intentionality and that you might give us the courage to disconnect from some of the activities that hamper our effectiveness in rubbing shoulders with pre-Christian people. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's the message? Page five. Message is good news about a wonderful person. So I've just kind of lifted some things out of Acts 2, Peter's sermon, which isn't really a template necessarily, but has some ingredients that we need to put in the faith-sharing blender. And so it's very clear from the book of Acts, our message is good news about a wonderful person and that Jesus is the good news and that our message explains the significance of Jesus Christ's death. So Charlie Spurgeon said something which I think could be deconstructed on exegetical grounds. He said, 
the preacher should announce their text and make a beeline to the cross. So it's not that every conversation needs to focus on the cross. But at the very heart, the gospel is a crucified God, Jesus of Nazareth. And God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Our message is good news about the resurrection, number three. And our message focuses on the lordship of Jesus, number four. So we're inviting people to come under new management, to surrender their way of living, to get off their agenda onto God's agenda, and to let Jesus govern and guide them as king. Our message involves the free offer of forgiveness and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And our message involves pursuing a verdict. Now on page six, I invite you to think here. How would you describe our cultural landscape? How would you describe the normal people you rub shoulders with? And to think about that. And maybe we'll talk about that later. But how would you typify those pre-Christians that you know? Their beliefs, their worldview, their choices, their values. And how do you respond? So what I'd like to do as I draw a conclusion this morning is tackle a question that isn't in your notes. It's how should we then live? So number one, you need to adopt the Italian missiological principle. What is the Italian missiological principle? Shut up of your face. So turn to the person next to you and try it out and say, shut up of your face. Wow, there's a lot of, you're too polite here. It, it's your big moment. It's your big moment to say, shut up of your face. In other words, learn to listen. Here's another problem with our inherited evangelistic paradigms. We're in the driving seat. We're on the soapbox. We're telling the truth because we know the truth and you need to receive the truth. It short circuits the art of listening. So we've got to listen for heart cries. Listen to the voice of God. And listen for the questions behind the questions. There's kind of triple uh, listening that needs to happen so you listen to someone's heart cries so i had a friend he was in kentucky fried chicken at one o'clock in the morning to get a deep fried gerbil and fries or whatever they serve up and a guy began hitting on him trying to pick him up so how do you respond if a homosexual guy and you're avowedly heterosexual finds you attractive and wants to get it on with you my friend turned to him and said, you're an orphan, aren't you? You're an orphan. And this guy began to weep. And the guy who was picking, trying to pick him up two minutes prior, initiates a God conversation. Because this promiscuous homosexual was an emotional and spiritual orphan who had a longing for God. One time I was doing street evangelism in Salem, Oregon. Way hey. And uh, with a team of Scots, and uh, I walked across the street, and I opened my mouth, and I went, whoa, as I was listening to what I'm saying, because it wasn't premeditated. 
And I knew the kid's name, so that wasn't given to me by supernatural revelation because I'd met him the day before. But I'd said to him, Royce, God has called you to be an evangelist, but you've walked away from him because your family was wounded in the church. I had no idea about any of this. No conversation. And he's just a dude. He said, I went to Bible college. I was a skateboard evangelist. My mom got divorced, and they treated us like dirt. So it's not about, here's my plan, here's my little talk, but the possibility, the alarming and exhilarating possibility that you could listen to the Holy Spirit and he could fill your mouth. Listen to the questions behind the questions. Also, ask good questions. I was on a conservative Christian radio station and I had a radio show called Hog Wild. And and on Hog Wild, I had a segment called Why I'm Not a Christian. And the bumper music was Sting singing, If I Should Ever Lose My Faith in You. And then voiceover man would say, Now it's time for Why I'm Not a Christian with Bill Hawk. And I would talk to people about why they hated the church, why they'd walked away from faith, why they would not become a Christ follower. Now, the number two in the station is a friend. I love him. He's a great guy. But he would be having kittens every time I did this segment. And he's like, man, you just got to bless these puppies with a gospel bullet. Well, that wasn't exactly his words. He wasn't channeling Jack Bauer at that point. But he was saying, you've got to hit them with the gospel. I said, no, this is an exercise in listening. We need to learn to listen and listen to learn. And so I would ask people a variety of questions on that show. I would say, describe your religious beliefs now. What has been your experience with Christians, good and bad? What problems do you have with the church or Christianity? How do you feel about Christians trying to convert you? How would you like Christians to treat you? If you could change anything about the church, what would it be? And it was to create a conversation where I was hearing and discovering where they were at. Ten years ago, I was in Amsterdam. And I was with a bunch of guys. And like the oldest guy assumed the role of patriarch. He sat at the head of the table and he decided he would say grace out there on the sidewalk at a sidewalk cafe. And just as the waitress was coming by, he grabbed her by the hand, which freaked her out like ugly old guy with a face like a lizard. And he's grabbed her hand and she's like, oh, and he said, young lady, we're going to give thanks for this food. How might we include you in our prayer? Now, I figured that's his shtick. I bet you he asked that question in every restaurant. It's not a bad question. It's not a bad thing to do. But it shouldn't be like, here's my routine in a restaurant. Hello. And she's like trying to get free from him. And she said, just pray that everybody has a good time. And she just hot foots it away and doesn't serve us again for the entire night. So we've got to work out what are some good questions. And it's not like, here are eight questions that I will ask any pre-Christian person I meet. But, but just ask questions. I found a great question. And I thought I would try it at my pub. And this great question was, I was talking to a guy about football. And then I said to him, hey, can I ask you something? He said, sure. I thought, good. Here comes the great question. The golden key. I said, if you could eat at any restaurant on the planet and sit across the table from God, what one question would you ask him? I thought, isn't that just an awesome question or what? <laughs> he said, I would ask God, are you enjoying the food? 
But it's to recognize that there's a place for declaration, proclamation, but for dialogue, for conversation. I'm involved in a ministry, and you can check out the website, thekindlings.ca, and we are also got a Facebook page called The Kindlings. And uh, we're trying to create a hospitable place for pre-Christians and Christians to gather for conversation. And so our tagline is, a hospitable, imaginative conversation about ideas that matter in contemporary life. So we don't start with Bible and Jesus and God and Christian spirituality. We start with contemporary issues and look at them through the lens of faith. So we've done shows like, because we meet in a, like a neighborhood restaurant and uh, I have a panel and it's done in talk show format and then we have Q&A from the audience and we've done things like... Uh, the Gospel According to the Simpsons, uh, The Theology of the Oscars. Uh, next month, we're looking at Philip Pullman's new book, We've Got to Engage in Conversation. We've also got to be conversant in sharing our story. Everybody's got a story. It's a story of how God's story collided with your story and you became a different person. And people love stories. That's why we were talking at breakfast. Why do people watch the MTV you know, these reality shows on MTV, like they run for 12 seasons. Because we're just like got an insatiable appetite to hear people's stories. Also because MTV is slutty and salacious and people like slutty and salacious TV. But we like being a fly on the wall. That's why soap operas run forever. You know, we vicariously live our life through the drama of someone else. But you can share the drama of your story. Jack Hayford said... And he's not a man prone to gender-inclusive language. So he said, a man with a story or an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. So people listen to your story. Figure out how you're going to share God's story. Always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. And last, but by no means least, be yourself. Be comfortable in your own skin. If you're not comfortable in your own skin, ask God to show you how to be comfortable in your own skin. Don't try and be somebody else. Don't try and be Arthur Blissett. Those of us who are like approaching 50 or 50 plus remember Arthur Blissett and thought, wow, I need to be like Arthur Blissett. You know, strap a cross to my back, drag it around the planet, put Jesus stickers everywhere you go. And then on a plane, when the flight attendant says, sir, what is your final destination? You say, heaven. Thank you. You know, you don't need to be like that. It's all right not to be like that. You need to be who you are. This is a lesson David, the shepherd boy and warrior poet, had to learn. He's there to fight Goliath. And King Saul says, hey, little guy, David, O runt of Jesse's litter, you're going to fight that uncircumcised Philistine giant, Goliath? Why don't you try my armor on? David does, bromp. He's like Darth Vader with no legs. That's not going to work. So he has to be David. He sheds the armor. What is he? He's a shepherd boy with a slingshot who'd become adept with a slingshot. I mean, it's boring being a shepherd. You're just praying that a bear will try and take some sheep. <laughs> Dead grizzly. You're just praying that a lion will attempt to break the monotony of standing, looking at the dumbest animals on the planet. So he becomes a sharpshooter with a slingshot and some rocks. And so just like David being David, you need to be you. If God made you an introvert, that's okay. You're an extrovert. God will use 
the structure of your personality. Don't try and be somebody else. But look in the mirror every day. Start naked and say, I am God's workmanship. <laughs> created, in created to do good works, which he has prepared in advance for me to do. Try it. Go back to your room. <laughs> there, there's a mirror right there behind the door. Just strip off and just say, you are God's workmanship. Ephesians 2.10. You just walk naked around the house when you get home. And your spouse says, what are you doing? Draw the curtains. For the love of Pete. And you say, hey, I'm a doer of the word. Not a hearer only. Ephesians 2.10. So be, be who you are. Be up close and personal with Jesus. And be dependent on his spirit. Pastor David Lee. Please welcome Pastor Lee. Let's go ahead and pray. And I'm going to ask that you would think about what we just heard. And we didn't have a lot of time for discussion and Q&A and all that, but I think that would make for the substance of some really good conversations during our, our, the rest of our, our retreat here. So let's pray together. Mm. Lord, perhaps no other question produces as much guilt in us as the question... Why are we not evangelizing? But we thank you, Lord, for some clear insights into what the right motivations should be for us to gift other people with the great news that they can also be engaged with the loving God who died to save them. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our eyes to the incredible need and really the plight of lostness. They're not as happy as they seem. And because they're human, their hearts also long for you. And we pray that you would make us those who would be faithful to tell the story of Jesus and get over our own inabilities or insecurities and love the people around us in Jesus' name. We ask, Lord, that you would bless the rest of our day. And while we laugh together and have fun, help us not to forget this very important theme, and you keep, Lord, doing a powerful work in us to awaken the evangelist heart and the passion for your gospel and for Jesus Christ in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.